Hello, it's Vikas Porta, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. A great pleasure to introduce our, our three guests, and we'll have a little bit of a discussion to kick this off, but then very keen to open it up to you. Hopefully there's a, a mic that you can use, or if not, speak loudly. Um, so the, the question as posed uh, for this panel was, do policymakers understand edtech? Um, but I'm going to be a bit controversial. I want to flip that question on its head, first of all. And I want to say, does edtech understand policymakers? Why don't I start with that? Andreas. I think, uh, on both sides, I think uh, our understanding of what the digital world will require from us in terms of skills is very limited. I mean, you have all these discussions on the future of what which we struggle with. And our understanding of the role technology can play in that is very varied among policymakers. I think everybody understands that technology can transform the knowledge that we can access. Uh, experience is a learning experience. You can make learning social. You can make learning interactive. You can make learning kind of uh, experiential. You do no longer have to listen about an experiment. You can actually do an experiment. I think those things are clear. The power that EdTech plays in uh, in connecting teachers, building kind of a shared profession, you know, platforms for knowledge creation, knowledge mobilization. All that is something that policymakers know, but if you look at the reality in education, the understanding is very limited. I mean, the status quo in education has many protectors. And it's often very difficult to ask the frogs to clear the swamp. I mean, there's so many vested interests that keep things as they are. So I'm not, I think actually policymakers do understand the value of ad tech and the transformational opportunities. But I think when it comes to implementation, there's a lot of hesitation. The political economy actually works against that level of change. Mm -hmm. Hi, mate. Um, let, me, let me compliment that. Um, all the potential uses, I think, are there, are clear for, for many of the players, not necessarily for all the players. But I, I do think there is a huge gap between um, the knowledge that the policymaker, even within education, might have about what are the right technological solutions, right, and what exists out there in the market, right? The, um, it's... I, I, I do see a lot of pressure for countries to invest in technology, but then the question is, even if they have the pressure, they will have the resources, is to do what, right? The first thing is then I buy hardware, right? And the hardware is a good solution because it's concrete. Okay, mm. the hardware is there, right? But then what do I put in the hardware, mm. right? And then the question is, what's the right software to put in mm. that hardware, or what's the type of teachers and training that I need of those right. teachers in order to, be, to use that software effectively? There is that I see a huge gap between the knowledge of the school administrators or, or education authorities in terms of knowledge of what's out there and that might be useful for them in their specific circumstances and what's out there in the market, right? So there I see a huge gap between the supply and the demand, right? The demand is there, I'm eager to buy, but I really don't know exactly of all the possible solutions that are there, what are the ones that make sense for me? Right? And then who would explain me? Because I don't know much. 
who will explain me, the ones who have potential who will explain me to do this at scale are vendors, right? So the vendors will not necessarily be the best source of information, right, about which one is the best solution for me. So I do see a huge gap there between the solutions that are there, my interest in terms of buying stuff, right, that might be, could be useful, um, and hence we see a lot of misallocation of resources. We see then a lot of buying hardware that is in the wrong place, of the wrong type, uh, or unused, right, and sometimes buying software that is not the right one uh, given the teachers that you have or the solutions that, that you need. Having said that, the potential is huge. Right? There's huge potential for education, for technology to be an equalizer, which is not today, and maybe we can talk mm. about that later. Mm. There's a huge potential for, uh, for a technology to complement in an efficient way teachers, right? But that's not simple to do, right? But let me leave it there. In this yeah, we'll come back stage. to those, but yeah. Stefania, though, any, any opening thoughts on that Good morning, dialogue? everybody. You know, I'm a former politician, so my... I, my answer is they, yes and no. I try to clarify. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> so like as politicians <laughs> usually do. I mean, they can understand. I, I think every single minister or former minister, we have an interesting group of former ministers <laughs> in this uh, meeting today, and we discuss a lot about this issue, and uh, all of us fully understand the importance, the crucial role of technology to bring the education system from the, for, from the last century to this one in terms of educational reform, in terms of implementation of policy, which can introduce more and more technological uh, devices, but also a new model of uh, learning. I'm not so sure that uh, all policymakers be aware as we must be today, that it's no more a question, uh, simply a question of educational reform, writing a law, making your parliament mm. approve this law, negotiating with the unions every single point or not, but it's a question of reforming, learning and teaching. It's a question of, you know, finding a new mindset and uh, be aware that Last, in the last century, the model of education was a very simple one. Student, teacher, books. Books bringing knowledge, teachers transmitting knowledge, and students, learners in the process. Are we sure that it's exactly the same right now? I don't think so. So we have to, to take advantage from specifically some last generation uh, technologies, AI for sure, first, and uh, to use this, uh, this uh, uh, technology to modify, to adapt our system of education, but also the learning and the teaching models. And to do that, maybe ministers, just uh, to show you, I didn't write this book, so I can promote it, <laughs> I think, sorry, yes. This is the approach. This is an interesting book uh, uh, just uh, published by this uh, neuroscientist, uh, is a French one, Stanislas Dehaene, which is quite famous uh, uh, worldwide, Apprendre, Learning. And there is a really a nice uh, uh, definition of uh, 
you know, the human beings as the perfect learning machine, which can compete with uh, computers, robots, and everything which also AI is more and more introducing in the daily working class. But at the same time, there is still something which is in human brain, which is very specifically, and the teachers must know a bit, not becoming specialists of neurosciences for sure, in order to be able to approach this century. And politicians too, no? This, maybe we must also give some time to them to read some books and to be aware that it's no more a question, once again, of writing a good law and finding consensus about procedures and processes, but it's a question of introducing a new mindset about learning and teaching. It's a more challenging task, but just looking at where we are, Maybe we can discuss a bit later, but let me say from UNESCO, the Global Observatory about uh, the, the, the goal four no? in the 2030 agenda, after five years from the launching of this ambitious project about sustainability, where education is the main infrastructure for sure, and looking forward in the 10 years what we are doing, what we have to do, we are still absolutely not on track. And that's why we must be uh, sure that technology can help in some way. Let's just, Jaime, you, you mentioned this or hinted to this issue of equality, equity. I mean, why don't you develop that theme a little bit in terms of the challenges of the scale out and mm -hmm. the growing potential for technology <coughs> and how to uh, try to compensate for mm -hmm. the risks that that can bring? So my, my sense on that issue of, of equality is that where we are today is that Technology, unfortunately, could be an unequalizing factor, because if if uh, if, we if we see within a country, right, that in order to effectively use technology and effectively complement the teacher, right, what you need to have, you need to have the hardware, you need to have connectivity, and you need to have a teacher that is digitally literate, then most likely that will cover 10%, the richer 10% of the country, and not the bottom 90% of the country. Right, so the, um, in, in particular in middle-income and low-income countries, I mean, there would be a group of population that might be now toying with the most innovative ideas, with the new pilots that exist, with software that, I mean, there's no one software or one technology that we know clearly that works universally, no. But many rich countries, I mean, they're toying with different ideas and there, there are interesting solutions around. So if you see a middle-income country, a low-income country, there might be some people, of, some part of the population that might have access to that, that might have connectivity, that might have the, the, the hardware, uh, that might have the teachers that can use that technology to complement and, and, and teach better and teach more effectively, but that's only part of the population that will be having access to that, right? And the rest of the population, which you don't have even the basic inputs, right, or teachers have, do not have the support of the right quality, then, I mean, they are each time left more behind. So my sense is that unless we do something, uh, technologies of now is not necessarily an equalizing factor. Now, the potential, is the opposite. Technology can be an equalizing factor, right? In many cases in which we have scarcity of teachers or teachers have low, have, have low capacity, then you can have, you can, I mean, if you are invest more in self-learning tools, that could be useful. If we, if we have tools in which both teachers and, 
and, and teachers that have low capacity, low tra little training, they can, I mean, improve their abilities to, at the same time that the students, right? Um, if we have scripted lessons that could be in a tablet when you have low capacity environments, all those are things in which actually we can improve the quality of the service, right, in, uh, in environments in which teachers are not great or in which there are no teachers, right? So the potential to, for technology to be an equalizing factor is big. Where we are today, mm. I think we are still in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a moment in which at this stage, that's not happening yet. Andreas, so if you were to map out the challenges and perhaps the unintended uh, negative consequences potentially of an explosion in technology and education, would equity also be high up your list? And what else would you add in there maybe as other you know, warnings for policymakers? You know, equity is clearly one, and I think Jaime has explained that well. I mean, the risk is that technology will super empower those who have the right skill set to draw value from it and disempower those who become the slave of algorithms. And I think that danger is very real because learning starts with knowledge and skills, not with technology. The question is, you know, those who want to use Google are those who, who can use Google are those who can, you know, have the right foundation skills to navigate ambiguity, build a mental representation of complex information, and so on. And I think that's something that we often forgot. We put technology first and learning second, and that actually will increase, increase inequality. The second challenge that I see is that of relevance. The kind of things that are easy to teach, easy to test, have become easy to digitize. They're disappearing from our labor markets. Routine cognitive skills are declining in value. Uh, what increases, and in a way, you know, one of the things that technology does, it should make us think much harder what makes us human. How do we actually complement the artificial intelligence with the kind of human qualities that will empower us to make, draw benefit out of this? And I think that's what, you know, why I think technology can amplify great teaching. It's mm -hmm. never going to replace poor teaching. I think that synergy mm -hmm. between the social and relational part of learning, and we tend to forget that. Second, I think the big challenge is to actually, maybe, you know, technology in the classroom is actually still quite debatable. Uh, we have, even among the wealthiest countries, positive impacts and also making learning more superficial and so on. I think where technology can make play uh, uh, the greatest role is in by professionalizing teaching, by connecting teachers, building right. kind of networks yeah. for knowledge creation. Why would you have you know, a, a textbook locally developed when you have access to the world's most advanced knowledge? I think this is a power where I think the challenges are not. But bringing this very concretely to policy, you know, when you go into a shop and buy a mobile phone, you can, you know, buy a kind of iPhone, you can buy a Samsung, you can buy a Huawei, and you know it's going to work for you. We have actually a market that functions. That's not true for EdTech. And actually, you know, if you're an EdTech company, you're largely, in even most countries, you have to sell to individual schools or districts. We have an extremely fragmented, atomized market. And who can serve that market? It's the big providers. If you are an entrepreneur or a startup with great solutions, you have just no chance in that kind of market. That's something that policymakers have fixed in most product markets, not in education. No. Yeah. Uh, the quality of educational software that, yeah, that young people are uh, getting is, you know, no child would play voluntarily with that. You know, that's another thing, that basically there's no quality assurance in those kinds of systems. In, in that sense, I think those issues of public policy are very easy yeah. to fix. You know, then, you know, 
highest point in training teachers, building capacity. That's a kind of medium-term, long-term agenda. But creating a level playing field, an open, transparent market, I think that is a huge challenge. If we don't master this, the kind of driver technology will become the driver of inequalities. Mm -hmm. I just, just want to complement that, that because I, I was mentioned that at the beginning. This is the, the market for technologies is an extremely imperfect market, extremely yeah. imperfect. The asymmetries of, of yeah. information I tr are tremendously big, right? Then the, uh, if you, then the other, in addition is a market in which if you buy something, then you are hooked to that and you have to continue mm. buying that, mm. right? So it's not a one thing that you, I buy it, it's not going to a restaurant. I buy it, I don't like it, I go to the next one. I don't like it, I don't do the next one. No, you're hooked to a technology Right, maybe for several years, right? So that makes also those decisions much more complicated. So the, the number of imperfections in this market is huge, yeah. is huge. And that deters a lot the buying technology at scale, yeah. right? In many cases, governments just basically, they don't buy, right? If you see the poor guy who has to deal with a procurement of technology in a government and he's an honest guy, right? Uh, he might not buy anything, right? That would be the best solution. Right, so, uh, so that is a market, as, as Andreas was saying, in which the intervention of having a good regulatory framework, right, it's critical because yeah. of the, in the, mm. the size of the imperfections. Yeah. Yes, to react to this point, I totally agree that this is uh, another very concrete, evident challenge we have. But I see also an opportunity in that. I mean that maybe it's time um, we are forced to do once again, just looking specifically to the role of artificial intelligence, that it should be more and more the main actor of the process of what we called last century, once again, ICT for education, we have to build a new deal with the private sector. Private companies must not be more simply providers of technologies and sellers of something, good products or bad products, to be experienced in schools and then to be measured and maybe change. Private sector must be on board in terms of sharing with them the potential, Amy and also Andreas mentioned before, which are related to the basic point of a new learning and teaching model. Just to mention a very concrete case I have in my mind. The question, of, in my view, my personal view, the real benefit of using technology and artificial intelligence for education is to have a personalized track of teaching and learning. It's no more a standard model which can function exactly in the same work, in the same way from Italy to Peru, uh, passing through the Gulf. It's something that, or in the same class in the same school, because the principal thinks that this is the, the model you have to implement to teach history or maths better and to meet uh, the, the, the goals you have at national level. It's now a question of being able to personalize and to see that students, that student who is in front of me, uh, which kind of needs, specific needs has, how can you use new uh, tools I have to give the right answers to his needs. You know that we talk a lot 
some years ago about uh, specific needs in education. Looking and referring specifically to disabilities, not people who, students who have, and this is a, a very important chapter still, but at the same time, personalization of teaching and learning is now the new model, the current model we have. And to do that is no more a single minister, a single ministry, a government which can do that. We have to, 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 in my view, to build a new deal with people who are working also in terms of basic research on these kind of issues. And the private sector can give a lot of good suggestions, but not simply as providers of something, but just, uh, you know, uh, working about values. And sure. this is something we can discuss maybe later. Andrea, yeah, so. I just wanted to add one challenge that I think we haven't discussed and that I think is key. You know, while you study with EdTech, EdTech will study you. And I think the data that is being generated about learner profiles, learner behavior, that's where the real transformation is going to come from. Not from the transmission function of EdTech, but by enabling us to see how students learn, how students learn best. Mm -hmm. And I, this is a role for government to start thinking about who owns that data, how do we regulate those kinds of information flows. The reaction that we see in many countries is basically, you know, you shut off everything. You basically, when school, students enter the school, turn everything off. We no, don't know how to deal with this data, mm -hmm. so we don't allow you to use Facebook or whatever. I think, you know, thinking about how do we actually manage those knowledge streams, how do, who controls, who manages the data, how do we ensure interoperability, you know, that basically you're not linked to one, that is going to be a huge challenge for public policy. But just picking up on the data point, another aspect of this goes back to your point, Jaime, on information asymmetry. How clear is the evidence? You know, you've got all sorts of ed tech companies claiming great things, but doing stuff subscale perhaps not terribly rigorously tested. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that a really big gap that there needs to be a lot more effort around? Mm -hmm. Do you, you want to come in on that? Mm -hmm. I, I think we're not there yet in many, in, in many fronts, right? I think there's, even, even if, if you see any, any country, either with, with a centralized system or a decentralized system like the US, it's not that you see like, look, all schools are using this. You don't see that, right? I mean, there are, there are many solutions I mean, on, on adaptive learning. There are many solutions in terms of, of making sure that teachers are connected. Uh, there are many solutions uh, in order to administer the school, to manage the school, maybe software-based. I mean, but there is not one single, um, um, say, solution that you say, well, this really, I mean, we know for sure that it works at scale nor that it's one, one size fits, fits all. So I think this is something that will continue to develop. I mean, and, 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 and it's part, we're in the middle of a process. Sure, You know, I think we all agree on the potential of technology, but when you look at the reality, the PISA study provides some really powerful insights. Technology often does more damage than good because of the poor quality. It actually makes often learning more superficial, more reactive. You want to encourage you know, deep thinking, deep understanding, conceptual understanding, and what technology does, it works on the centers. That is the reality, and I think we need to sort of, if you work in the medical industry, actually, you do huge clinical trials before anything comes into the market. In edtech, you know, you can just Dumb solutions yeah. on individual schools. Yeah. That's not even a systemic approach. I do think issues around quality assurance are very real. And I think if we don't fix that, yeah. we may actually get a very, very massive backlash to those technologies. Because learning outcomes clearly signal that, that actually in the majority of cases, 
the, the effects are more on the downside than on the upside. Not because of technology, but because of its poor utilization. Mm. It doesn't have to be that way, though. Mm. Right? It doesn't have to be that way. But it is true that um, governments do not see necessarily the whole package that is needed in order for any technology to be mm. used properly. Right? So it's not an issue of buying the software. It's, it's the software, it's the hardware, it's in, uh, how does it fits with the curriculum, how does it fit with the competencies that you want to get, how does it fit with the level of teachers that you, that you have. And usually those things are not seen in an integrated way mm. in order to then find I mean, what, what is the solution that makes sense for me at this moment in time. Mm. John, About curriculum, yes, my view is still a crucial pillar of education. But once again, the opportunity we have in these current times is to build a new concept of curriculum. We discussed yesterday during this meeting of the Atlantis group here in uh, Guest. Um, and uh, the new concept, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the experts proposed, I love so much, is agile curriculum. That means not a set, uh, fixed a sequence of content that learners must acquire in a sequence uh, for, and, 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 and teachers have to follow in order to run and to quickly uh, you know, achieve uh, the learning uh, goals and outcomes, but the dynamic process of learning and teaching that we need. And artificial intelligence can help to do that, no? Just thinking the platform that we can build at many, you know, more advanced universities for sure, but now more and more also uh, school system can adopt where you can, you know, uh, not simply find as in the library uh, single books uh, that can uh, have the advantage to give you just well-structured content, but you can uh, move from one to another. And so this is my view, another, uh, from the challenge, uh, moving to uh, a very good, uh, a very good uh, opportunity we have. Okay, let me, a, a couple of questions. Um, uh, one at the back there, please. Yeah, is there a microphone? Thanks. Hi, this was a fascinating discussion, thank you. I'm Natalia Gavrilica from the Global Innovation Fund, and I was um, very interested to hear uh, about the data and the role of data. Uh, in India, we already have uh, one government that has initiated the procurement of uh, personalized and adaptive learning solutions and, that, and is scaling up uh, sort of personalized adaptive learning in a massive way. And we're going to have this wealth of data that Global Innovation Fund with coalition of partners will look at how it can feed into the science of learning and give us insights Briefly, about, please. sorry, uh, so one of the challenges there is there is no universally accepted taxonomy of learning concepts that this data can sort of feed information into. So how do you think we can uh, align on what are the key learning concepts, foundational concepts that each child has to know? Andreas, do you want to okay. Yeah, you know, I think this is actually where technology is very strong. If you think about traditional curricula, we have to trust and believe that people who make decisions about this knew what they were talking about. With technology, you can actually test those things. In fact, if you look to large uh, companies, you know, think about Benesse in, in Japan, they actually give students, learners, slightly different variations of tasks, and they figure out actually how students learn best. So learning analytics, 
I mean, the future of education is in data science. And I think future educators will be data scientists. They will actually understand how students learn, how students learn differently, and in what context. That's where I see actually technology can play a very powerful role uh, over traditional curricula. And in the background, that's not even meaning that students have to, you know, use a lot of technology. You can do a lot of that in the background. And, but again, it requires that we create a kind of level playing field, a common language. How do we actually use those kinds of data? How do we regulate, you know, privacy? All of those issues need to be tackled. And this is where I can see kind of a complete absence in the policy discussion. It's focusing on technical <coughs> solutions. But the points you raise are really the ones that will decide on the future of edtech, in my view. Okay, we, um, Thank you. A follow-up question actually on data and the use of big data. We've talked about information asymmetry, we've talked about uh, lack of quality assurance. Um, what are the questions that you have uh, that big data in EdTech will help answer? What are, what, sorry? The what are the questions that you have today? that big data in edtech will help, okay. help answer. What could big data do? Yeah. What questions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you I think have? It, will, it will make education less in art, and, or not less in art, but more of a science. We will actually, you know, neuroscience and big data together, I think will help us a lot to understand about learning. Pedagogy today has a lot to do with traditional beliefs, and I think by understanding how students learn through those kinds of big data, we'll get a lot of additional insights. Because so there's not, just, no, no, just simply in addition. Uh, yes, not not simply sim personalized, which is uh, also my view, as I said before, the very very key benefit of uh, the, the wise use of technology in education, but also an adaptive system. So if you can. Uh, manage big data, you can see pattern, you can find pattern, and then you can have the way to, to adapt the system to the changing process that you have yes. also outside. Because if I can say something about it, it's also the time really to put educators and innovators in the, on the same page. Mm. Because it's not exactly the same. We must be, we must be very frank, no? Uh, schools and education systems should be, you know, by definition, the places where you, you, you can introduce innovation. And frankly speaking, it's not exactly like this everywhere. So now there is the opportunity to put together in the same place innovators and educators. So mm -hmm. intersectorial uh, yeah. perspective, I should say. That's what we need. Let, let, me, let me add to that. I, I would even see it a little bit yeah. more complex in the sense that I, it, for me it's a, it's a triangle in which you have the schools here you have people who are doing software innovations here and people who are doing research in universities about learning here, right? And those three yeah. sites do not necessarily talk to each other, right? Even when you see someone doing a software innovation, right? Um, any program that is about self-learning for, uh, uh, to read ba to about basic arithmetic, right? Each time you touch the screen, Right? And you go from one type of problem to the other. Each time you give a right or a wrong answer, that's a, that's a data right. point right? about learning. Right? But then they are producing that, and the researchers who are at university talking about learning right, are not using that information. Right? And those two are not necessarily talking with the educators in the school. Right? So there's a triangle there right, of the research side, the innovation side, and the school where, the, where things happening. Right, that are not, are not put together. Okay, unfortunately we're almost out of time. If I just, each of you, if you just had one 
how should I put this, recommendation, let's say, about kind of, you know, bringing together, you know, this divide between the ed tech sector and policy makers to kind of make the system work mm -hmm. better. What would it be, mm -hmm. Andreas? I think it's really about creating a level playing field, greater openness, and actually encouraging and incentivizing the innovators. At the moment, you know, mm -hmm. we are disencouraging entrance into this, and I think mm -hmm. that's something public policy could do mm -hmm. tomorrow. Everything else, you know, building the kind of infrastructure, building the kind of teacher education, that come later, that's a hard thing to do, but I think creating a level play, play, playing field is something we could do mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. So, uh, one, one, one first is an advertisement. I mean, we're working on a technology hub with Diffit that is about that. It's trying to put together the supply and the demand, right? What's out there, right? And what might work with the needs of governments? And the second, the, the, my other thought is that just we need to stay with this thinking that education, at least in the foreseeable future, it will continue being a human interaction intensive activity, right? And given that technology, of course, can make that, that interaction between teacher and student could be more effective, more powerful, right? But it's still, humans will always be needed. Okay, Stefan. Yes, my recommendation, looking at, uh, talking to ministers about it, mm. please, uh, working about uh, education and technology, AI and, and education, please don't forget ever the chain values, which is information, knowledge, wisdom. By means of a humanistic approach to education, uh, technologies in education, we can still have the last point of the chain, which is the most important one, because computers, uh, AI, learning machines will be for sure smarter than us, no? It's something that we have to take a, a, a granted right now, but we must be sure that by means of creativity, by means of soft skills, by means of uh, art and music and all this kind of content, the humanities we don't must neglect, we can also develop the last point of the chain, which is wisdom, and I don't think that machines will be wiser than human beings if we choose this approach. Perfect wisdom. Do please thank our panel.